0: Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Haspler Baptist Church, located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. Church, I come into the pulpit this morning greatly (laughs) encouraged after spending really sort of Tuesday through Friday for me uh, with roughly a hundred other men from Ontario and from Quebec, some brothers even from Nova Scotia. There was a brother there from Dartmouth and and another part of Nova Scotia who'd all come together to grow and be sharpened in our ability to handle and proclaim God's Word. And so be encouraged, church. There are those who are across our province and beyond who are seeking to do their best to be those who are approved workmen who rightly divide the word of truth. And I'm thankful to have had areas of encouragement and also areas of needing to grow as a preacher. And so please do continue to pray for fruit from that Simeon Trust workshop uh, that took place just this past week in Georgetown. So if you did pray to that end, thank you. Uh, please continue to. Your labor in that way is certainly not in vain. A few weeks ago, during our bedtime routine with our four-year-old, I asked him the series of questions that I'd been teaching him to answer. Just, Who made you? God. What else did God make? Everything. Sometimes we have fun with that one and we name specifics. Why did God make you and everything? For his glory. How do we glorify God? By loving him and keeping his commands. Why should we glorify God? Because he made us, and he takes care of us. The short, simple, it's repeatable, and I just keep adding new questions as he gets a handle on those ones, and we keep building his knowledge of the Lord as revealed to us in the scriptures, but on that particular occasion he said, Dad, why do you keep asking me these questions? <laughs> Which is a really good question. And I said to him, because i asking questions and answering them is a really great way for us to learn about God and about ourselves. And as a parent to fellow parents, I commend that long-standing tradition as useful to you as you evangelize and disciple your own little ones. Now, what I didn't tell him is that Jesus asked a lot of questions himself. We follow in good footsteps when we engage in this strategy, this means of teaching the next generation. I recently heard someone say that Jesus asked over 250 unique questions in the gospel. Questions are one of the ways he drew people out. Questions are one of the ways that he drew people to himself. I hope that's one of the reasons I enjoy questions so much myself, and why this morning, before we read our text, I want to take a cue from our Lord. And as we work our way through these verses, I'm going to pose four questions drawn from the passage that we're about to read. As we anticipate coming to the table this morning, which involves looking around to the Lord's people, looking in with the Lord's help to examine ourselves, looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, we also look back to the Lord's death itself. And today I want to especially turn our attention to the scene of our salvation, to one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' death. But just because we read it, just because we watch this scene of salvation unfold with our eyes, just because we listen to this scene of salvation unfold with our ears, it doesn't mean we will automatically understand what is happening. In fact, very few people who witnessed Jesus die on the cross understood what was taking place before their very eyes. And so my hope and prayer this morning is that by spending some time here and asking these questions that our grade sixes and sevens would understand what happens at the scene of our salvation, that our high school students would get it that our young adults would, that our men and our women would, that any one of you who is here who is not yet a Christian would understand what is happening at the scene of our salvation as we look to the cross of Christ. That's what the cross is. It's the scene of our salvation. And as that scene unfolds before us in the reading of the Gospel of Mark, as we look back to remember him in his death, I long for us to see and believe and rejoice in what actually happened there. And as we do, I trust we will be all the more compelled to eat and drink at the Lord's table, to enjoy our fellowship with the Lord there, and be nourished in our most precious faith by He who is present with us by His Spirit as we take of the bread and of the cup. So to that end, turn with me to Mark chapter 15. It's page 853 in the blue pew Bibles that you hopefully have in front of you, so if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please take that, use it now, take it with you, that you might have a copy for yourself. Mark chapter 15, I'm going to read just six verses, verses 33 down through 39, Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39, let me pray for a moment before we hear God's word again. Lord, I pray that you would open eyes, that you would give understanding to minds, that you would enlighten hearts, that you would unstop ears, so that as we give ourselves in these few moments to the preaching and hearing of your word, that Jesus Christ would be magnified to us. And that we would understand perhaps for the first time and embrace that this is the savior of the world and that those who already have would grow in their wonder and their worship and their joy over what jesus christ accomplishes for us in his death and this is not done by words of eloquence or my wisdom not by might, it's not by power, it's not by wisdom, Lord, but it is by your Spirit. And so I pray the aid of your Spirit for myself as a preacher, and for my brothers and sisters here, and for those who are friends and family to us. Help us, O Lord, we pray, to see Christ magnified, for we ask these things in his name, and all of God's people say, Amen. Mark chapter 15, then. Beginning in verse 33, it says this, And when the sixth hour had come, that is noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that is around 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Brothers and sisters, this again is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, where we've picked up Reading in Mark's Gospel this morning, as we have these communion Sundays, is in the context not only of confusion, but revulsion. In the few verses prior, verses 29 to 32, people are shaking their heads at Jesus in verse 29. They are chirping Him, they're trash-talking Him. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The religious leaders of the day, the experts in the Old Testament, join in with this sad, ironic statement in verses 31 and 32. This is what they say. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those being crucified on either side of him get in on the mockery and the contempt although one would eventually come to see Jesus for who he truly is. In his final hours, he would turn in faith and hope to Christ with the promise of paradise on the other side of his own cross and death. And I love Alistair Baggs' imaginings here of that thief's entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And he, he arrives and he doesn't know really much of anything. He couldn't tell you about justification by faith. He couldn't recite to you Paul's argument in Romans. He couldn't, he doesn't know any of these things. And if he was asked, how is it that you came to be here? His simple answer would be, the man on the middle cross told me I could come. And all of this because of what was accomplished by Christ who hung and died on the cross beside him. As the scene unfolds, and Mark tells us of the sights and the sounds, beginning in verses 33 and 34, I ask this question. As you look to the cross of Christ, are you sheltered from God's judgment? As you look to the cross of Christ, are you sheltered from God's judgment? Look with me again. Again, at verses 33 and 34. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is not normal. As I mentioned, the sixth hour by our reckoning is noon, so there was a divinely appointed and supernaturally occurring darkness, slap bang in the middle of the day. How this was brought about, the text doesn't tell, us only that it was. This darkness, we are told, lasts For roughly three hours until 3 p.m., and the whole time Jesus is hanging there in the dark, there is associations of divine judgment. We'll get back to Exodus next week, and eventually we'll come to the showdown between Yahweh and Pharaoh, and we'll see darkness as one of God's judgments on the nation of Egypt. A darkness so deep and so thick, Yahweh says to Moses, that it would be felt, a darkness that you've heard recently came before the death of the Passover lamb, just as the darkness accompanying the cross comes before the death of the Passover lamb. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read of darkness accompanying the day of the Lord, which is at both a day of judgment for those who are enemies of God and a day of salvation for those who fear and trust Him. So, Joel 2, 2 reads, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of Yahweh is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. A few verses later, the sun and moon are darkness, and the stars withdraw their shining. In Amos 8, 9, there we read, The Lord speak of a time of judgment when he will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Zephaniah foretells of a day of wrath, of distress and anguish, of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Darkness and judgment are related in the Scriptures, as Jesus himself graciously warned us of. He spoke of the place of eternal judgment as a place of outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for all those who stand condemned already for rejecting God's Son and the salvation that is offered through him. And I don't want that to be any of you. Nor does God desire that any of you should perish forever in such a place. How do I know this? Because on the cross... Jesus endured the judgment of God in our place that in Christ we might be sheltered from what we rightly deserve for our sinful rebellion against God. Not too long ago, perhaps you remember this, it's kind of the first of the season, but I was waking up several nights close together by that little spell of thunderstorms that we had. One of those nights, just guess where we live, the lightning struck so close and the thunder boomed so loud that I felt it in my chest. It was intense. As I lay there in bed, in the dark, warm, dry, safe, sheltered, I was very thankful. Being outside and exposed in a storm, it can be dangerous, it can be deadly. So it will be with the storm of God's judgment that will come on the final day of the Lord. Unless we take refuge in the shelter that the Father has given us in His Son, who Himself faced that storm of judgment on the cross. The judgment on this day of the Lord, as Jesus was crucified, that should have fallen on us, fell on Him instead. The cross being shrouded in darkness while Jesus hung there is indication to us that this is so. That's what we see as this scene of our salvation unfolds. Jesus hanging in the darkness is experiencing the judgment of humanity in their place. But we also hear that this is true with our ears. As Mark records for us at the conclusion of this period of darkness which is interesting that it comes at the end, not at the beginning nor the middle, but at the conclusion of it. Jesus cries with a loud voice, and you can see this, uh, this wording that Mark includes there. And if we allow for some adjustments in pronunciation and my weird Scottish-Canadian combo accent, that may be close to the actual sounds that came from Jesus' mouth. But for the sake of his readers, not Aramaic, Mark gives the meaning, my God My God, why have you forsaken me? This is not the only way that Jesus cries out on the cross. As God the Son, he speaks and addresses his Father. But here in this moment, representing humanity, we have this cry, My God, my God. This is the cry of Jesus being made sin and experiencing the judgment that should have fallen on sinners but fell on God the Son incarnate instead. As this scene of salvation unfolds, we see the darkness and we hear Jesus cry and we witness in this moment God laying on Jesus the iniquity of his all. This cry of dereliction is that of the Son of Man bearing the penalty of sin as suffering servant in our place. One lyrical theology artist I like to listen to, he puts it this way. Jesus was being treated as if he was the shadiest atheist, a wicked liar with twisted desires, tormented as if he was a foul investor or child molester, suffering as if he constructed the corrupt justice system, like some guy on the corner with crack rock and porn on his laptop. The CD type who likes to beat his wife. He was treated like a rapist, treated like a slanderer, treated like a racist or maybe a philanderer. And the writer concludes, I could write for a billion years and still can't name all the sins placed on the lamb slain. Is it any wonder? Jesus invokes the words of Psalm 22:1 that were read earlier. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The question isn't rhetorical. We know the answer so that you and I wouldn't have to be. If we come to Christ as shelter from the judgment that we deserve because of our sinful rebellion against God, He hung there in the darkness of judgment as our substitute. He experienced suffering and death in our place that God's wrath might be turned from us and God's favor turned towards us instead. And at the end of the period of darkness, His experience of suffering in humanity's place, it's almost concluded. He will confidently entrust himself to his Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He is still God the Son, and though some would teach otherwise, we shouldn't read a break in the Trinity into Jesus' cry here. I'm actually rethinking the line that we sing in the song, the Father turns his face away. Jesus writes of this experience of being as human, human, humanity's substitute, But he is still God the Son. Instead, what we should read into Jesus Christ is the rest of Psalm 22, which is why I asked Pastor Kevin to read it for us. Just as Jesus suffered as per Psalm 22, verses 1 to 18, he would also be vindicated as per Psalm 22, 23, and 24. "'You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel.'" For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried to him. And the vindication of the suffering Messiah, who is also God the Son, results in his being a shelter from God's judgment for the nation. Psalm 22:27 27 reads, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Huh? How is this so? Because the one who cried, Psalm 22, 1, hanging on the cross in the darkness of judgment is the one that God was pleased to crush and pleased to vindicate for our salvation. He is our shelter from God's judgment the only way that we can come with any comfort or hope into the presence of a holy God. And so I ask, is he your shelter? Have you trusted in him? Do you see him there hanging in the darkness as hanging there for you? Do you hear him crying out from the cross as crying out for you? Why did God forsake him? So that you and I would not have to be. Now, sadly, this was not obvious to most. Sadly, in this incredible moment at the scene of our salvation, at the cross of Christ, where the suffering Son of Man dies to rescue sinners, most people completely missed the point. So I ask a second question as we continue in verses 35 and 36: As you look to the cross of Christ, are you marked by misunderstanding? Are you missing the point? As you look to the cross of Christ, are you marked by this understanding? Look at verse 35, hear it again. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Granted, Eloi and Ali, they sound similar. And in response to this, someone takes a, where they run, they fill the sponge with sour wine, they put it on a reed, they lift it up, they give it to him to drink, and, and they say, well, let's wait and see if Elijah will come to take him down. It's interesting, there's no reaction to Jesus quoting Psalm 22.1, but there is to this misheard reference to Elijah. And some people asked in the weeks leading up, the week leading up to this, what's going on here? Like, why are they wondering about Elijah? Well, essentially, the Jews here are wondering if a spiritual superhero is going to show up to save Jesus, completely missing the point that Jesus was the one who was saving them by his death. And the reason they were fixated on Elijah is because of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, which, if you were to look in our Bibles, would be the last book of the Old Testament. This is what it says Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So it's dark, there's something happening. Jesus is crying out. They think he's asking for Elijah to come. They're wondering if this is going to be what Malachi is speaking about. It says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so that's in their minds. It's also in the minds of the disciples after Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration to talk with Jesus about his departure, literally his Exodus, and they ask him in Matthew seventeen ten, why did the scribes say that Elijah must, uh, first must come? The expectation was that Elijah, the mighty prophet who had the showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, that he would come and he would lead the way for Messiah. And so this is all in their minds. It's in the minds of the Jews as they're watching this. It was previously in the minds of the disciples as well. Now listen to Jesus' answer to the disciples back in Matthew 17. He says, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. That's what the angel told Zechariah when it was announced that Elizabeth would bear a son. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So all of this to say, where does this Elijah come from? Well, they're drawing it from Scripture. But those looking on at the cross of Christ, they were only right in one sense. There should have been an expectation of Elijah, but they totally miss that John was the one who came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord, and that Jesus was the Messiah. So they miss all of that. They're still back here waiting for Elijah to come, and they're waiting at the cross of Christ for Elijah to swoop in at the last minute like Captain Marvel to save the day. If the consequences of this misunderstanding weren't so tragic, it would be comic. They stand around waiting. After lifting up a sponge for Jesus to drink, perhaps hoping he'd say something else, waiting for some splendid show of divine power as this mighty prophet would come and save him in the last moment, and then maybe that would indicate that he really was the Messiah. Now, what's sobering about all of this is that they had the Old Testament Scriptures. They had a front row seat to the greatest act of salvation in the history of the universe. The eternal purposes of the triune God were unfolding right before their eyes. The love of God was meeting the wisdom of God, which was meeting the grace of God and the power of God and more. And it was all kaleidoscoping beautifully right in front of them, and they missed it. They were looking for someone else. They were waiting for something else to happen. And if they could miss it from that vantage point, you could miss it from yours. If you're not yet a Christian, it seems like a good idea to humbly accept the possibility that there's truth you're not seeing. That there's a reality that you have not yet come to terms with. You may be indifferent You may be a skeptic, you may be a mocker, you may think Christians are just plain dumb and stupid to believe all this. I used to entertain such thoughts as that sitting in this very room as a teenager as well. Someone writes, the Son of God as one who died a weak, ignoble death, was offensive and stupid to anyone at that time, no less so today. Maybe you've been dragged along by mom or dad or husband or wife or friend and you're nodding on the inside, yep, offensive and stupid sounds about right. But I ask, are you sure? Are you sure that you have engaged in exhaustive inquiry to say with confidence that Jesus is not the Savior of the world? That He is not the risen Lord who will come to judge you and everyone else? If He isn't, what else is it that you're sitting around waiting for? deliver us from this world and its brokenness and misery and sorrow and death. What are you looking for? What are you trusting in and, and how's that going? Maybe you're from a different religious tradition. Maybe someone here or listening to this is from a Muslim background and believes what the Quran says about Jesus as being merely a prophet. Those from Jewish backgrounds reject Jesus as Messiah. There are those from Sikh backgrounds who believe that you can approach God from any direction, from any religion, just like you can go into the temple on any of the different doors. This scene should be a stone in your shoe, a chink in your armor. People can come this close to the truth and completely miss what's going on. Are you willing to entertain the possibility that you're marked by misunderstanding? Are you willing to truly ask that God would reveal would reveal to you the truth about his son? It's possible to be this close and to miss it. And so in humility, I would urge you to exercise humility and question, search, explore. That you may, may be missing just as these individuals were, that Jesus is indeed the one who has come to save you. And to those whom God has been this gracious to open eyes, to see, let me say in no uncertain terms of faith in the Son of God as a gift, there's no boasting here, there's no arrogance here. Christian, we have nothing that hasn't been given to us, including eyes to see who Jesus is as the scene of salvation unfolds. And if you profess that to be true, let me ask a third question as you look to the cross of Christ. Are you overjoyed by Jesus' accomplishment? Now, I understand there's darkness. I understand there's this cry of dereliction. I understand there's this grievous misunderstanding. I get it that this is the scene in which he dies. But this is something that we should look on and see that there's triumph and rejoice in it. Are you overjoyed by Jesus' accomplishment? Why do I ask that question? Look at verses 37 and 38 with me. While well, those who aren't getting it are waiting around for something to happen, something does happen. While they're waiting to see if Elijah shows up to bring Jesus down from the cross, Jesus dies to bring us into the presence of God. Mark records, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, I would take this to be the same as John describes in uh, John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. At that very moment, As Mark records, there is a stunning physical phenomenon in the temple, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. An act of God, not of man. An indication that the way is now open for all to come through Jesus, who died in our place, into the very presence of God. This, I quote, symbolizes the destruction of the temple, and the invalidation of the sacrificial system on the one hand, and on the other, opening the way of God to all people. Now whether this was the inner curtain, there were two. One of the curtains would separate the holy place from the most holy place, and the most holy place, many of you will know, was only, uh, you could only enter on one time, one individual. The high priest could only enter on one occasion. It was the Day of Atonement described in Leviticus 16. Otherwise, that was like a no-entry sign, no-entry uh, curtain. The other curtain was on the outside of the temple, and uh, it was an indication that there was a barrier for the Gentiles to come in and worship Yahweh. So which curtain is being torn here? It's difficult to discern, but either way, the message is the same. It is through faith in the crucified Son that we are brought into the presence of the God, of God. This is what His death has accomplished. And the implications of this are profound. Because of the accomplishment of Jesus' death when the curtain was torn, we can read this in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Listen to what it says. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, The, the rending of the curtain at the death of Jesus, when he cries this triumphant, it is finished. It means that in the middle of the night, when you can't sleep and your soul is troubled by all sorts of things, that you have access in the name of Jesus to enter, as it were, the throne room of God and draw near to him and ask that he would help you. That's incredible. Because of the accomplishment of Jesus' death, when the curtain was torn, we can read in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through him, we have both, that is Jew and Gentile, access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God could go on and on to speak of the joy of this accomplishment of Christ, the implications of this accomplishment, which are not just present, but they are future as well. The access we have to God through Christ now, the fellowship we have with Father, Son, and Spirit now is indication of the closeness we will enjoy with God forever. We're going to eat and drink. Shortly, which points us forward to the fullness of fellowship we will have with God for eternity future. It's incredible that God invites us through a meal to his table. You sit down with people as you invite them into your home. What happens? You get to know them better. You enjoy their company. There's a closeness. There's a, a deepening that happens there in relationship. And from the, uh, the, the images and sacrifices of the tabernacle and then the temple, all the way through to the Lord's Supper and then the marriage supper of the Lamb, it, it is an indication to us that the way has been opened and an invitation given and preparation being made so that we can enjoy God's glorious presence. It's remarkable. All of this and more because the curtain was rendered as Jesus gave up his spirit in his death. I read a story this week. I had forgotten I'd ever read this. I was reminded of it about a, a young boy his name was John, and he was six years of age. He lost his parents, and he was sent to live with his aunt. And he, you know, he thrived under her loving care, and he stayed with her until, until he was a young adult and became independent. And in her later years, as her health declined, she wrote to him for comfort. And this is what he writes back. It has almost been 40 years since I was left alone in the world. When my mother died... "'You sent me word to come to your home "'and that you would be a kind mother to me. "'I remember the long journey and my fear of your servant "'whom you sent to meet me. "'And I can still remember my anxiety "'as perched on your horse "'and clinging tightly to William, your servant, "'I started from my new home, riding toward the sunset. "'Night fell before we finished the journey,' he says, "'and as darkness deepened, I began to be afraid. "'Do you think she'll wait up for me?' I asked William. "'She'll surely wait up,' answered William. "'When you turn the next corner, "'you'll see her candle in the window for you.' "'Soon we turned the bend in the road, "'and there, sure enough, "'was your candle shining in the window. "'I remember you were waiting at the door, "'that you put your arms around me "'and lifted me, "'a tired and bewildered little boy "'down from the horse. "'There was a fire on the hearth "'and a warm meal awaiting me. "'After supper, you took me to my room, "'you heard my prayers, "'and then sat beside me "'until I dropped off to sleep.' You're probably wondering, my dear aunt, why I am recalling all these things. Someday soon, God will send for you. Don't fear the summons, the strange journey through the darkness. At the end of the road, you'll find love and a welcome as you enter the Father's house. As you turn the road, you will see the candle of his love shining for you. Or just like that little boy... We're journeying in the deep darkness of life that is this fallen world, and we're afraid, and we're wondering, at the end of the road, will anyone be there? Will there be a candle in the window? The torn curtain on the occasion of Jesus' death is our resounding Yes. That is the joy and blessing of Jesus' accomplishment. He has done this for us in the ultimate display of God's limitless love. You don't have to earn this access. You cannot earn this access. You don't have to be worthy of it because you're not. Jesus accomplished it for us so that we can be embraced by the Father as we embrace Christ by faith. And so enter into fellowship with God now and never ending presence of God in eternity future. This is the accomplishment to be received by faith, a faith that expresses the final words of our passage. As the scene of salvation unfolds before our eyes and ears, there is a final question Are you convinced of Jesus' identity? At the cross, as we witness the scene of salvation, are you convinced of Jesus' identity? Look at verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Now, I I want you to understand, I know we're just sort of jumping into Mark here. I want you to understand that this is quite the reversal in Mark's gospel, given what comes prior to this point. Human voices have been rather opposed to Jesus until now. One commentator calls them, I'm going to give you the word because I find it helpful, antiphonies, anti-sounds, anti-voices. If you prefer, haters would be the modern equivalent. I want you to hear some of them. Just listen to these. When Jesus was anointed by the woman with a pure nard, this expensive ointment, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? And they scolded her. This anti-voice. When Judas went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them, when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. This anti-voice. In Mark 14:56, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him. Again, with this, this oppositional, hateful, anti-voice. We hear the high priest conclude that Jesus has committed blasphemy in Mark 14, 64. They put something over his head and they start to smack him around and they say, prophesy, this anti-voice. We hear Peter deny him three times, and the third time he began to invoke a curse on himself. God, damn me if I'm lying. I do not know the man of whom you speak, this anti-voice. And then there's a crowd, give us Barabbas. And they responded to Jesus with these words, crucify him. And the soldiers mocked him, hail, king of the Jews. And the chief priests and the scribes, they, they join in. These human voices to this point have not been favorable to Christ. You need to understand that. As we hear these words of the centurion. Because in this final, I quote, the human response is positive and faithful. In Jesus' death on the cross, a Gentile outsider, a Roman officer in charge of Jesus' execution, no less, becomes the first person to confess Jesus in faith as God's son, thus fulfilling the whole purpose of Mark's gospel, end quote. The opening words of Mark are this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The conclusion at his death of the centurion is one and the same. Truly, this man was the Son of God. I quote again, while Jesus is alive, humanity wills his death. Only in his death can humanity see him as the way to life. The death of Jesus on the cross is thus not a defeat, but the consummation of his mission and the climactic revelation of his identity as the Son of God. So this confession of the Roman soldier is an invitation to not only consider, but a profession to agree with, an invitation to join him in becoming convinced of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Is that true of you? And it's a staggering invite. For this confession of Jesus' identity as the Son of God by this Roman soldier surely is an invitation to all sinners. Here's a man standing facing him to make sure that he dies. He's part of the death squad. And yet in his profession he's set before us as an example in whose footsteps all should follow. Meaning that regardless of who we are, regardless of where we've come from, regardless of what we have done, there is a way to God, and it is through Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus didn't just die for the nice, tolerable, societal sins that we are willing to put up with. He suffered in our place. The sin of the world was laid upon him that he might be our shelter from God's righteous judgment. He is the Son of God whose accomplishment brings us into the presence of God. Do you confess that this is who he is? If not, what would keep you from doing so? Will you not confess today that this is who he is? That is the conclusion this scene of our salvation intends us to to come to, to say with the centurion that truly this man is the Son of God. And many have made such a conclusion. When you consider where this starts, at the scene of Jesus' death, not by a Jew, but by a Roman, and you consider all of the places to which the gospel has gone, it's really quite incredible. I heard a thought this week, and one of the, the, the encouraging Uh, most encouraging component of the Feb Stronger Conference on Monday that we were at as pastors. We heard Dwayne Klein recently uh, step down as pastor of James North and and Hamilton. Uh, He said something before us that I'd never thought about. When you consider all of the major religions of the world, they've only really flourished in the places of their origin unless the people who lived there would have then sort of moved and they've given birth, uh, you know, and so it, it sort of stays within the people group and the location where it originated. And you could trace that out. You could look at Sikhism and Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and those types of things. So all of the major world religions, they stay where they've originated except one, with one exception. That's Christianity. And it's represented in some ways even in this room. We heard a sister read Japanese last week. We could invite someone up to read Korean. There's people from India. There's people from the Netherlands. There's people from all sorts of places in the world. What began here with the centurion saying, truly this man with the Son of God has spread to Asia and to Africa. It's gone to Europe. It's come to North America. It's come to South America. It has gone to all the places, the continents of the world. Inviting everyone, compelling everyone, urging everyone to agree with this confession right here, to become convinced of Jesus' identity that he is the Son of God and that there is salvation in nowhere else. Is that what you believe? Let me pray before we sing and come to the table together. Father, thank you for sending your Son. And as we remember him now in his death, as we eat, in remembrance of his body, as we drink in remembrance of his shed blood, I pray, Lord, that this would not merely be an individual evangelical confession booth where we think we have to be miserable and uh, consider how... Awful it is that we are, surely, Lord, we are to examine ourselves. Your word tells us to help us to have done that prior to and during these moments. But I pray at the same time, Lord, that we would rejoice and that we would rest in and that we would be nourished by and grow in our wonder and awe at what you have done for us in Christ. And that as we engage our senses, touch, as we hear, as we see, as we taste, I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would confirm to us and assure us of our most precious Savior and of the relationship that we have to call you Father because he, the Son, was willing to die in our place. So help us, Lord, I ask as we eat and drink, help us to remember that this is as a feast and help us indeed to feast on Christ with eyes of faith that we might indeed be helped and strengthened by this means of grace that you have given to us that as we go from here, we might be strengthened to live and to walk worthy of the gospel. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite the elders to come forward as we sing. and in preparation of serving, so if you could please do that, men. You know your assignments, and uh, then we will serve you after this.